You could start the race in Staten Island, the New York City Marathon, end it in Manhattan, and then take the ferry back to Staten Island, and you're back where you started. But pe- many people ask, why would you do that? It's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast featuring two guys just shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll talk about China, yes again, recent developments on trade agreements, and yes, I just want to stress they really, really do matter. And of course, the gift that keeps on giving, Brexit. And later we'll talk with Susan Aronson about digital governance. Not sure what that means. We'll find out and why people should be paying attention. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So let's get ready to rumble. Wait, who put who put that in there? <laughs> We're not going to say It thing. says Michael Buffer voice. We're not going to say the other thing. Let's not get ready to rumble without further ado. No, we're not going to say the other thing is the thing. I know the editors will get that out of here. Welcome, everyone, to episode 24, the atomic number of chromium, for those of you who are interested. It's also the age at which I got my first job that did not involve manual labor. Funnily enough, it's also the age at which Rob got married, allegedly. But before we jump into this episode, I understand that Rob has an important update for us. Yeah, uh, thanks, Artie. I know people are calling, they're writing letters, they're sending us telegrams and so on about the arrival date of my bicycle. I mentioned last episode I was having a supply chain issue there. It's now confirmed. I got a text for February 24. I was afraid to ask whether that meant 24 February or February 2024. Because so we're in Europe and they don't, they, they, I'm confused. <laughs> it does, which date the date you know goes in. In any case, I'm, uh, I'm quite happy to have a date. A guy once said. Sounds awkward. <laughs> You'd said before you married your wife. So uh, thanks a lot for your concern, everybody, and we'll, we'll we'll keep you updated on that one. Narrator. Nobody was concerned. <laughs> Any actual listener feedback that you can help us with here? Already? I do actually have stuff that's you know contributing to the segment itself. Not, Very good. Not, hello, this is Rob's personal baggage segment. <laughs> <laughs> one listener wrote us to tell us that, quote, you had me at bleach. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah okay. Um, we'll take it. We'll go back over the uh, transcript there. And also, he wanted to know how we can keep a straight face while talking about trade and kebabs. He's misunderstood how serious business that is. I mean, kebabs, it really encapsulates everything about trade, business, even politics. And it's a part of the identity of Geneva itself. Of Geneva, but of the world. Everyone has kebabs, unless you're in it Washington, It brings us DC. together. Uh, D.C. suburbs, we've heard. No, that's true. That is true. Sorry, trade guys. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just looking over the script here. Another listener wrote to mention that they very munch. Typo. <laughs> munch enjoyed our last episode. You want to tell us about that one? That's right, Rob. This listener did write us to let us know that he very much enjoyed our last episode featuring Lars Carlson, where we were also talking watches. And by t- we talking watches, I mean me. He also did want to know, however, on the seamless border uh, discussion in Northern Ireland, he was surprised that we did not mention tear, tear, trademark. When discussing the issues of transport. Yeah, good, cu- good catch. Thank you. He did catch us. And thank you for, for keeping us on our toes because that's what we have you valuable listeners for. I had a couple of bits of feedback as well. Did you? wanted to share? Yes. Tell me. Uh, one of our listeners said she didn't really necessarily always care about what we're discussing, but it helps keep her mind blank when she's running. So I thought, you know, another. remember an earlier listener said it was good for uh, soothing teeth pain. We, we do what we can. Listen to the soothing sounds of tradesplaining while you go on your meandering morning run. And another... Also, everybody knows that steady state cardio does not work. And it's really all about that high intensity. This was... Okay, this was uh, where we were going with this. That's, that's all I wanted to say. Okay, thank you. In the <laughs> words of Tom Hanks, that's all I have to say about that. 
I feel like a banner ad should go across everybody's screen right now. <laughs> and another, <laughs> another wondered how we got away with some of the things we say as UN staff members. That'll be believed. Artie, how do we get away with that? Well, I think the important thing is not acknowledging it, maybe alluding to it in some very ambiguous way. The other trick I've realized that does that makes it work is that you say things with conviction, say it with a smile. And I was wondering, did you talk to HR? Talk is a strong word. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know what there is to get away with. I think we're pretty family family friendly. Point. That's an excellent point. That will stay in. Do not edit that out. We're pretty family friendly. We're friendly. We're UN friendly. And to quote my favorite HBO show, Succession, we here for you. (laughs) And there is a you in UN. That's a really meta reference. And people will be googling HBO Max, who should be paying us for that little nugget. And another banner headline. I mean, another banner ad goes through. Whatever device you're on. We're just losing money is what we're doing. Anyway, Anyway, keep those listener comments coming. You can write to us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. You can also reach us at Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. Or if you see one of us in the hallway. Or if you see one of us, I have been pulled over, like like stopped. Staten Island. No, not in Staten Island. The one with the crowbar, that one? We did talk about different story. Different story. Same vibe, though. Well, then, let's just jump right into this episode's news Let's jump. Here we go. That's a Van Halen song. Anyway, let's get into this episode's news roundup, or what we keep calling the What Went Wrong This Week segment. As you listeners will know, Tracebleeding is the podcast which brings you the news after it becomes news, but before it hits your news feed on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, which is, I guess, a value added. That's a value added. Anyway. But once we talk about it, it will hit your news feed because you'll have listened to this. Heard us talking about it. Anyway. Once again, we have to talk about China. China has been in the news. We've talked about it quite a bit, especially in terms of the tech policy and and things like that in in recent weeks. But the question on everyone's mind is whether China is collapsing due to the end of its housing bubble and whether or not that's a good sign and what it means for the global economy. I know you have some thoughts on that, Rob. I've got thoughts. So this company called Evergrande is a kind of poster child for this situation. It's a property development company. It's been built a lot on debt. So they have a lot of connections with the Chinese government. They have connection with state banks. It's a company that has something like more than $300 billion in outstanding payments. And last week, they missed a key payment to investors. So investors are like, wow, everybody knew there was a bubble in China. It's been headlines. It's been not headlines. It's been news digest. It's been everywhere. But suddenly, this company misses a payment. And now, boom, there's a panic. And everybody's Mm. wondering, could this be the Lehman Brothers moment? And you remember 2008, US allowed Lehman to collapse. And that brought on the global financial crisis. Mm. Maybe some positive things in the US economy. In general, it seemed to have been a watershed, an incredibly difficult moment for the U.S. and for the world economy. So the question now is, will China let this massive, which I think has something like 300 mega projects underway, will they let them fail or will they somehow bail them out? And the, the question also is, if they do either one, what are the implications? And even more importantly, the Chinese model has been led in many cases by property development. Up to 30% of growth has been driven just by property. So is it the end of that? And if it is, what's next? So maybe they'll bail this company out. Maybe it will go bust. But could this be the Chinese turning away from that debt-driven kind of property infrastructure model to something else? So I think it, it is an important point. It will have massive implications because these numbers are enormous. 
Right, of course. I think, I don't know if the Lehman Brothers analogy is like for like. Maybe there's some similarities in, in, in the way these things have unfolded. I think Lehman Brothers was not too big to fail. I think Evergrande is probably also not too big to fail. It's probably too big to not, it's probably too big to fail completely, right? So they probably will bail them out. I mean, you're already seeing people protesting, home buyers, I should say, who have bought properties from Evergrande at these inflated prices in the past few years, now complaining that Evergrande is selling them on the cheap now, the same similar properties. So you're seeing that social unrest. So I don't think it's a viable option for China to let it just go the way of the dodo, so to speak. I think it's interesting because, as you said, they have built their economic growth heavily on on real estate. I think the question is now, because so much of capital has been invested and, and many people have talked about how shadow banking is an issue in China and, and how it's just a house of cards. I think it'll be interesting to see how they address this because there's not really an easy out for them, especially because so much capital has been invested in, in the real estate market. It's much harder than to uh, allocate capital in, in China in, in more productive parts of the economy, mm. whether that's uh, technology firms or we've been talking a little bit about how they've been trying to reorient the technology sector within China to make it a bit fair, if you will. So I think it remains to be seen. I think it's quite difficult, especially considering how much money has just been plowed into. There have been many articles about how China has these, um, I forget the, the the word that they use, but it's these phantom cities where they're just sort of slabs of concrete Absolutely. with nobody them. living in them. Yeah. And with the sole aim of just driving this GDP growth. So it was a numbers game, if you yeah. will. And to evergreen the loans so that they never, they never come due. We never have this situation. Of course, of course, exactly. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think being 13 years on from Lehman Brothers, and it's something that was quite formative for me since I was in college or towards the end of my college career and looking down a blank hole in terms of the job market at that time, I think they will have learned lessons. I just don't think it'll be as easy for them to get out of it. I think when you're talking about numbers like 30% of GDP, I think it's it's quite 30% of growth, excuse me, it's quite hard for them to to reorient, at least in the short term. Medium term, maybe. Uh, Long term, probably easier. But again, we're talking about a, a hit either way. I think it also shows the the, the importance of China. So Lehman, U.S., 2008, very clear the contagion that had. China is now that big. They can have that contagion. And so that they could, for instance, let's say elevator, all elevator sales, anybody who builds an elevator is totally focused on building it. If that market slows, it'll have repercussions. You'd be looking around at everybody who builds an elevator and wondering what's going to go on with their stock. I, I think it also, I mean, now that it's coming to light into the public now, I think it also shows why China has been placing so many big bets on AI, on things like machine learning, on quantum computing, whatever that means. I think it shows why they're trying to reorient as much as possible towards these technologies of the future. And in some cases, they're leading the way. And, and uh, again, that's we'll talk about this later, but it shows why uh, the next few years are, are quite critical to see how things shape up and whether or not China realizes these aspirations. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of that, I think that was a good segue, if I don't say so myself. We'll move on to trade agreements and talk about why they matter. So it has been a busy couple of weeks. China has applied to enter the CPTPP. Um, I don't think there were enough acronyms in that one. The UK asked to enter the CPTPP and the USMCA, and the WTO is bobbling towards MC12. And yes. I'm, all, I'm all out of words. So tell us, what, what, am, what am I just reading? Yeah. Okay. So we're, we in Geneva, of course, trade agreements are our business and we think they're important. And a couple of the... the biggest, we know that they're important. They're, I'm sorry. We know they're important. They're absolutely important. So three of the biggest things that have happened to trade agreements in general is this CPTPP. So this is the Trans-Pacific Partnership originally conceived as a kind of way to counterbalance China. So the US was in there, New Zealand, Japan, a bunch of others. And 
The U.S., of course, pulled out under Trump. The The remaining companies went forward, sorry, countries went forward with it, and it became, it went into effect late 2018, and it continues. More countries are coming on. Peru, I think, is going to be the latest. This is going, and the Ch- China, of course, came up with RCEP, which we talked about a while ago. In any case, a similar agreement, which is to create their own kind of sphere in, mm. in the Asian area. But it's one of the most progressive trade agreements. It's one of the ones people want to be part of. And now, even though it was designed to be a counterbalance in a way, to China. China has asked to be a member. And I think it's an interesting challenge because it is progressive in many ways. It has chapters on investment. It has chapters on sustainability. It has chapters on in other areas, services, where a lot of countries would hope to be able to get China to act more like a good global citizen. But there's a lot of questions out there, and I think it'll be very difficult for them to become a member about whether they will comply with that. And for instance, there's a lot of disappointment of whether they've complied with their WTO requirements. So that's China's request to become part of it. The UK has also requested to become part of it. And the members have been open to that. And they've said in June uh, 2020, let's start negotiating. And that's an interesting development because Brexit has allowed the UK to go and negotiate. So it's not the EU anymore. It's it's the UK. Could this open Bojo. Up? Yeah, it's Bojo himself. It's bo- with the beautiful The artist formerly mom. known as Boris Johnson. <laughs> so he's out there negotiating. He's out there doing all sorts of stuff. And that was that's seen as a kind of dividend of Brexit. So we've heard a lot of bad things. And you'll talk more about those because you're kind of on the negative end of this. We talk about it because we do things together. We trade, <laughs> we trade splain responsibly and equally, equitably. But this gives the UK a chance to be part of this very progressive, important agreement could open up Asia for them. So I think it's it's two sides of the same coin. I think the UK will get in eventually. I think China won't. There'll be a long process of them not getting in. And I'll add one more to this, which is the UK also wants to become part of the USMCA. So this is the US-Mexico-Canada trade agreement that was signed under Trump. Which um, was also shot down, I think, it was through leaks in various news agencies that it's actually not happening. Uh, they haven't applied yet, but there's a lot of discussion that it might happen. It's a nice way of putting it. Uh, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't applied yet, but I still think it's interesting. And it's it's what, in a way, UK wanted, which is we can do some some crazy kooky things. They'd started a bilateral discussion with the US on a trade agreement, which, of course, was, let's say, lost momentum. That's a, nice way that. of, that's a very diplomatic <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> with Biden coming in. So they're looking for back doors, basically. And they try, they're trying USMCA. They, they're hoping the US will give them other kind of backdoor entries. But it's going to be quite difficult. And the last thing in trade agreements, of course, WTO kind of ambles along towards its next ministerial meeting and everybody wants an outcome. I, de- I definitely do. You do. We want to see them do something good. And there was a couple things we discussed. There's to try to end fishery subsidies or control them, reduce them. Agricultural subsidies, control, reduce. There is a thing on e-commerce. and There's a lot of things they're looking at, but it's it's getting close. It's going to be the end of November. I think it's a really good test. You remember how excited we were when Ngozi became director general? So can she be this deal maker that we need? Because there's a lot of reasons why it could not happen. There's so many members. There's so many different things going on. So I think it's been it's been an interesting couple of weeks, and we I think we we need to keep a, an eye on the UK as this kind of new free radical that's bouncing around and trying different things. The antioxidant of, of uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> trade negotiation. I think my I think you you summed it up quite quite well. Maybe response to the one that I would probably like to mention is that on the CPTPP front, I think it's also telling, and there's a broader theme here, and I think that is that you could link a lot of this back to uh, trade wars, 
broadly speaking, right? So, and COVID in that sense, like most of what we talk about. So I think you, you've you seen this as a response. I don't think it's a surprise that it came immediately after the US, the UK, and Australia signed a deal to buy submarines, for Australia to buy submarines mm-hmm. from the US. And immediately following this, China announced they wanted to, to apply. The deal on the submarines, funnily enough, came about almost as a consequence of China deciding to unilaterally almost overnight stop buying barley, wheat, meat and other types of products from Australia, which was its its biggest export market. And so you're seeing the political ramifications of what are notionally speaking just trade disagreements. So I think there are broader issues at play here. I don't I think many people have said it, I mean I'm not an expert on this on the CP, CPTPP itself, but many have said that China is not really does not really have a chance of, of actually joining it. It's mainly just to stake out a claim or position, if you will, and as a response, as I said, to this uh, sub deal. Also, I didn't know if anybody makes diesel subs anymore. Sorry, France. It could be something we should talk about, but apparently the French had reconverted nuclear subs to diesel because they were not allowed to give or decided not to give nuclear technology to the Australians. And then your 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 buddy Joe Biden. Riding decided with, to Australia decided they're riding with Biden. So is France still relevant? Stay tuned, folks. It's moving on. Moving on to fun stuff. We've got Susan Aronson on uh, yeah. in a little bit. I guess that's a good time to bring up our favorite tech company and how that they're suppressing the competition of tomorrow. Or so people are saying. Yeah. Okay, look, I don't understand how Facebook could be so dominant and could be changing the world and, and controlling the world when nobody uses it. That that's that's a real Nobody's me type it. of generation thing to say it's like i'm not using it therefore nobody is I you know who's to, using it my relatives old people you'll I, be there in a year i literally am stalking my high school friends on it but in any case fine okay oh, it's dominating the world i take that for granted so what what we're noticing now is we know you and i have talked about competition laws coming back they're going after big companies the power the power of being a platform and how they can squeeze out a lot of other things and the companies know this is coming so they're actually starting by acquiring many smaller companies who could become later competitors so we see the sec of course in the u.s is looking at for instance mergers and they're Mm. saying is this a merger of interest and should we do something about it but the threshold for that is something like a hundred million dollars so any purchase they make below 100 for instance they could buy trade splitting for under a hundred million dollars i think way under a hundred million and that would actually be good value for money that would be great value for money and they could suppress us as a potential future competitor and nobody would take any note i think more people listen to us than mark zuckerberg's podcast that's just going on a wing and a prayer here. I'm just going to... I don't think he has a podcast. Well. Yet. He, he didn't have Instagram before he bought it. So I think, I think this is an interesting one for our later conversation with Susan, as you say, that they're basically they're basically vacuuming up small companies that could potentially become competitors before they have a higher market valuation. And they're doing it before also the government wakes up and goes after them for anti-competitive behavior. So let's see. Yeah, I, I think the the through line that runs through all of this is data. I mean, and there's a reason we picked this, we chose this news article to talk about. So Amazon is, is, has bought MGM. Facebook is buying up the, these different companies. They bought Instagram. It starts with content, but downstream of all of this is the fact that they're getting data from all of these users and it's concentrated in a handful of, of, of companies. And we're going to talk a little bit with Susan about why that is so important and why companies value that so highly in 2021 and, and moving forward. But I think we've also seen with, with Apple as well now 
they had this lawsuit against them on the App Store with the prices or the percentages they were charging app developers to have their products be posted on the App Store. And so this was seen as a monopoly and it was turned down. So now Apple will have to change its business model in a way they were charging something like 30% for app developers while apps that were developed by Apple itself did not get that. So there was a disadvantage there. And I think momentum shift, if you will, I think we're seeing, we're starting to see the, the signs of that changing. I think that wraps it up for our news recap. Did you not have anything to say to my beautiful follow-up to your follow-up? Anyway, uh, anyway, I, I, I know when I'm wandered. not wanted. I know my when I'm... Wandered. I know. Uh, moving on, we're going to talk with Susan Aronson in just a bit, so stay tuned. Susan Aronson is a research professor of international affairs and director of the Digital Trade and Data Governance Hub at the George Washington University, which aims to educate policymakers, the press, and the public about domestic and international data governance issues from digital trade to public data governance. Susan's work currently focuses on mapping data governance, trade as a tool to counter disinformation, data and national security, as well as America's approach to stimulating AI. Also my old job. Susan's also a frequent speaker and writer on international economic developments, regularly writing op-eds for Barron's, as well as appearing as a commentator on economics on Marketplace, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, NBC, CNN, the BBC, PBS, and of course, RSVP. Trade splitting. <laughs> Wasn't going for that. Anyway. So, Susan, thanks for joining us on, on Tradesplaining. Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to where you are currently in Washington, and what's the journey been like? Very frustrating. <laughs> so, basically, I studied diplomatic history in college, and that is a dead, worthless field in many ways. And then I went to grad school at Columbia in international affairs, and during the period I was in grad school, at the time, I really wanted to get a PhD in history. But I thought, gee, maybe I'll get some more practical experience. So I got a job offer from GAO. And I went down there and I worked on trade for four and a half years. A lot of different aspects of trade, trade's relationship to development. But what really motivated me was I worked on a project that looked at protectionism. That really led me to believe that protectionism was really not helpful to the very people it purported to help because it was unaccountable. And the main beneficiaries were shareholders, but it did nothing to make the industry more efficient and accountable to those groups, whether it was taxpayers funding it or shareholders. And so when I went back to school for my PhD, I knew I wanted to write something about protectionism. And as I looked to the history of America's efforts to come up with trade rules, it struck me that there was a lesson to be learned in the big failure. And the big failure was the failure of the world to accept the International Trade Organization, which looked at global trade from a much broader perspective than the GATT ever could. And so the International Trade Organization, which was negotiated by 54 countries in Havana, Cuba, also had at the negotiations representatives of academia, civil society, and labor. So they were diverse delegations, not like they have today, where only government officials can come and outside the room are observers, some of whom are heard. And so that story really motivated me. And I wrote my dissertation on this government failure to, to communicate the ITO. 
And I see so many similarities with digital trade today and internet governance today. So how did you get there? What what made you think, okay, that's the next thing to talk about? So I, I again, what kind of obsessed me as a scholar is how do people understand economic change and think about it, but also the relationships between human rights and trade. So I use trade institutions to look at those questions. And it became, I'd say in about 2010, but before that I had been working on public understanding of trade and public protest about trade. I wrote a book called Taking Trade to the Streets. I advised the U.S. government. They didn't listen to a word I said about how they might find common ground on issues of labor rights, which broke apart. You know, the WTO meaning, you know, a little town called Seattle, where lots of people be in the street. Sound like a fun, that sounds like a fun set of meetings. I mean, there were a lot of cool people there, a lot of good drinking. Is there a Nirvana concert? Breaking a few things. No, Seattle. Nirvana. <laughs> Ministerial. Seattle, Nirvana. Get it. Neither did Pearl Jam. <laughs> so what do we mean when we talk about data governance or, or, or privacy governance, internet governance? Same as human rights or labor rights or the environment and trade, right? It is really about how do you regulate domestically that which has global effects? So it's a two-way street, right? The choices that we make nationally as to how we regulate these things, especially if the platforms are bigger than a government, really affect people outside of our border. And this has really come to fruition. It was true before, right? You would have these giant global companies that you know, could move pretty easily. So if they grew bananas in El Salvador, they could move to Nicaragua or coffee, or they made clothing in Guatemala, they could move easily to another country. So if the labor rights were not only similar, but if they were enforced in a similar manner and valued in a similar manner, and yet policymakers are unwilling to see that two-way street. They know it's important, but they haven't yet acted on it. And this, to me, is particularly problematic for digital trade. A, because the platforms are so big and so powerful. The, the key thing for me, though, is that how trade agreements regulate this is they enforce your own laws. Let's work towards regulatory cooperation, but enforce your own laws. And again, the same is true for labor rights. The problem with that is that telling El Salvador to enforce its own laws on, let's say, spam or competition policies, that's a real problem because El Salvador might have to spend most of its money this year on vaccinating its people on COVID, right? Yeah. This is not a thoughtful way. If, if trade agreements are going to govern data flows, you need to have at least a consensus as among nations as to how to do this. I, I get it, but in a multilateral situation, often it's very difficult to say, okay, everybody's going to have a, a new agreement that's going to override their domestic politics. We know that that's, that's a very, very difficult situation. So since 2003, there have been these bilateral regional agreements that to varied degrees have covered either e-commerce or digital trade. And you know, more and more, they have binding. And that started in about 2011. You have the EU model. You have the U.S., I'd call it U.S.-Canada model. You have a new model, which is called the Digital Economy Agreement. And that is Australia, Singapore, Chile, and New Zealand. They have different variants of this. And that looks at it in a different way and says, hey, this is not about digital trade. 
This is about the digital economy. And it's much broader than that. But in truth, if you look at the actual language in the agreement, it has lots of pretty words, but nothing binding about the notion that, gee, we need to work together to do more on cooperation. But we're starting to see some change. The latest trade, which is Australia-Singapore, actually does say, we've set up this new committee to come up with shared standards and a shared approach to competition policy. But you know, 12 million people plus 3 million people ain't going to move. It's less than a billion. You know, uh, Europe is 750 million. And, you know, they see themselves and they are setting the rules governing not only competition, but personal data protection, data sharing. But the thing is, you know, so you have this negotiation that all of a sudden looks like it's actually getting some success at the WTO. It's a little bit exciting. And I am someone who believes this can't succeed if you have, you know, these different types of patchwork agreements really need something that is as multilateral as possible. So on that point, you, you talked about the U.S., Canada, Australia, Singapore type of agreements. So where does this crackdown by China on, on tech firms in, in recent months and their announcement on how they're changing algorithms since they're about consumer protection, where does that fit in? Are, are they on the right track? Is that, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, I see this as as, as having two, ob- two objectives, right? The first objective is about power and that there was, there were entities that were and some still are, have significantly more power and influence over how people behave. And if more and more of life has moved online, that is problem one, right, for the Chinese Communist Party. And so you see that crackdown for that reason. But there is another reason. And here is where I think China is actually leading the world. And that is the income inequality issue. What they're trying to do is address the income inequality effects of these huge giant corporations, because what it's leading to is concentrations of power that the Chinese Communist Party alone can address. What we don't seem to realize, it, this to me is a huge U.S. government policy failure. But I think right now, they see these things in separate spheres. They see the democracy problem, right? They see disinformation and they see the trade problem. And they're starting to think, gee, if we have a club of democracies that have similar norms for a free flow of data, you know, address things like spam and disinformation, et cetera. So what you will see moving forward, the U.S. government wants to do is have this club of democracies that are addressing all these issues. What would you say is the single biggest threat in the area of data governance or privacy or my data? But maybe we have also listeners who are in the development game. What should they really be thinking about? That they aren't already or doesn't yeah. get enough airtime. So collecting data on human beings is not new. It's probably been since the 1920s that there's been huge, you know, businesses making decisions on group, grouping people into groups and then making decisions about, you know, if you live in this zip code uh, and your income is 30,000, you deserve this loan. But if your income is 16,000 euros, you don't. Okay. But what I what really freaks me out is so algorithms that firms use to assess data is proprietary. It's a trade secret. No, they don't have to announce it, but so they own the data analyzed with the trade secrets. So that is one concern that worries me. People are so worried about privacy. 
what they should be worried is that there's so much data about them. And so now that gets to, you know, you and I have no idea what data Google has on us. And Google's been, you know, since its first days, it's been accumulating that data. You can imagine thousands of server farms that how hold that data. But the amount of data that that company has, like, look, Target and Safeway know a lot about me. And you did consent to that when you great. you did consent to that you when hit you hit yes, the, the frequent flyer. The yeah, the frequent flyer. <laughs> I've been manipulated to think I get lower prices just for them to know my shopping. But the amount of data that Google has, now let's go to IoT, right? When your refrigerator starts talking to you and saying, Susan, it's time to buy milk because you drink two containers of milk a week. What kind of autonomy do you have then? And so I worry about the future of democracy when, you know, a, a bunch of corporations that are bigger than any government and has so much data about me as an individual and other people that are liking me. I don't see anybody paying any attention to this. They're very concerned about data brokers, the sale of their data as well they should be, and, and surveillance. I can tell you that in the United States, policymakers are obsessed with, you know, how do we find a balance between do we break up these companies because they are, you know, they don't fit traditional monopolies, but they are too huge, way too huge. Or, you know, for national security reasons, do we maintain them? It, this to me is the wrong question. The better question that we have to ask is how do we reconcile democracy with something that we have never seen before? Which yeah. And I, and I also wonder, yeah, on my side, I've been liking videos where people, the guys who run and jump off bridges into bodies of water, how would that affect my ability to get a loan in the future? I, it, you get life insurance <laughs> video ads. It's an interesting point because what does that say about you? You know, is it that you're thinking about- my jumping? You know, like yeah, my jumper. Dangerous? <laughs> Yeah. Well, what scares me, I think, I know Apple recently announced they're getting into uh, health more than they already are and that they're going to come up with, with apps that analyze your mental state and, and give you updates on when you're not, you know, too much screen time or not enough screen time. How are you time, feeling, Artie? Or you're not spending enough time on Apple products already and things like this. Yes. And how does that link to, you know, your ability to get health insurance or, you know, what, what can that data then be used for? So I, I think these are things that people don't think about. They don't think about it. And how do you motivate them to think about it when you can barely get them to vote? Listen, all, all I know is all I know is my people. uncle says the NSA is spying on everything, and that's what we should be worried about. Not the fact that Google knows his every itch, scratch, and secret so desire. Because there are in the United States, this is just something we do not have personal data protection for companies, only at the sectoral level. But the government has real restrictions on the amounts of data it can collect. That's not to say it's sufficient or it's effectively enforced or whatever, but, you know, there's a ton of whistleblowers that, you know, continue to, to press against the government. But nobody, even the CEO, even the creators of Google really know what data they have and how they mix that data. And so to me, that is a scary question. But to get people to care about, that is not going to happen. And from what I know about trying to get them to care about trade, you know, this is this is just a really tough task. When all the incentives are, you know, to think about what's in front of me 15 minutes ahead. I think that's incredibly unsettling, enlightening, and um, interesting all at the same yeah, time. I agree. Um, I'll be honest. I think Facebook is the most evil company in the world. 
And I see very little social benefit. And I think Facebook will have to be regulated because, you know, in contrast with Google, yes, the owners, the, the founders own the, a special class of shares. Same at Facebook, but Google is so much more accountable to its employees. But, you know, and I'm not saying these companies are not, they are fallible, but the amount of power that, you know, they have, we as a society have to address this. The big question is how? And so it's up to you and I to ask these questions, but we can't, we can't get people to care, Right. We have many, many listeners, and we hope we can get them to care. How, how do we tweak we, the algorithm so billions. we get more listeners? We don't have billions yet, but we're going to give it a shot. So I think this this discussion has heightened my sense of nervousness, insecurity, and, and depression all at once. But that's why we have the second part of our interviews, to lighten the mood a little yeah, bit. Exactly. So as, 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 the, as the happy cynic of this uh, dynamic duo on trade splaining, let me start by asking you, I will keep it trade related to start, on a scale of zero to Billy Joel, since you're from Long Island, how many times a day do you hear the phrase, data is the new oil? I never hear it. Nobody says it anymore. Oh, it's past. So, um, it's cliched and it, it's, it's totally incorrect because oil is exhaustible resource. Data, you can reuse it constantly, right? So I get, uh, for instance, Google somehow at the world, Facebook and everybody else thinks I have belly fat, which is weird. Yeah, it's super weird. So I, gotta <laughs> Do you? I, I, I got a lot. Well, sorry, but that's a private. Maybe yes. That's a non-zero answer. <laughs> so, so I got a lot of ads for that. So what, what do you think Google thinks you are, Susan? I mean, like, are you, what do they know about you and what would you like to change? So I'd like them, I'd like Google to actually think I'm a flat-bellied, you know. Channing hot. Tatum? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what would you like to change in terms of Google's impression of who you are? I think I am a perfect example of hypocrisy, you know, because I too accept cookies at times, but I also know that. I know how to erase the cookies and you should learn how to too. Once you put them on, you can clean out your cache and you should do that every five days. It's uh, another problem. We don't know what information these companies have on us. Again, to me, that's the biggest problem. And let me give you another example. Many apps take location data without your permission. They also take your contact list without your permission. Another example is many other sites would say, do you want to sign in with Google or Facebook instead of your email, which takes a lot longer? Or when you do take in from a restaurant, they do the same thing. Uh, and a lot of people will say, oh, that's so easy. Let me do that. They don't read the fine print. You have given your location data, your whole contact. It's as if you have now exposed people to pawning, to disinformation, to malware, to spam. And you did all that without caring an iota about the effects on other people without knowing it. But you did it. Ignorance is bliss. Or mean. Would this be more like, could you liken this to, or say Facebook, I know we've been harping on about Facebook, they're not a sponsor, so we can't do that until they do. But <laughs> would you liken this more to uh, cigarette companies, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, 
people sort of knew they were bad, but we really did not know the full scope of things. And they were, I think once that I realized Facebook's entire lobbying arm or communications team is like two or three times the size of, of the SEC and the uh, FCC and the FTC and, and all of these government agencies that are supposed to be regulating them. And so they can afford, they could just throw hundreds of people at them, which are multiples of the government agencies that are supposed to be regulating them. Would you liken this to the cigarette companies back in the day? I'm thinking of, you know. No, uh, because it's much worse than that. Companies that knew the effects of oil on climate change, like Exxon supposedly knew it, you know, 20 years ago. But I think this is so much bigger because the product that we're talking about is built on data, which you and I just simply can't control. We never have been able to control data, right? And there's so many different types of data and so many ways it can be combined. And this worries me. Right now, people are still dealing with the surveillance capitalism aspect of it. But the truth is that the information that we provide today is going to haunt and affect our children and our grandchildren unless we figure out how to regulate this. And nobody knows really how to do it yet. Well, on that happy note... Um, <laughs> you know, Susan, you keep bringing me down. I, I promised myself I would not, I, I would not, I, I'm not going to cry I, tonight. I promised myself I won't cry. I open myself up and you jab. I open myself up emotionally and you jab, you go for the kidney punches. Is power, buddy. <laughs> Susan, no, we really appreciate this, but let us move on before I cry into my pillow. The main theme of tradesplaining, you would be surprised to know is not actually trade, but it is kebab. And we would like to know what is your favorite kebab globally? You may substitute others in place of kebab, but you will lose points. There was a huge, I don't know if scandal is the right word to use, but I would have to say not kebab, but it's basically tandoori. Is is that a form of kebab? We'll allow it. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah. Excellent. Tandoori it is. <laughs> Tandoori explaining. Tandoori explaining. Yeah. I love so, the title of this. Thank you. We really appreciate that. Susan, thanks a lot for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun talking to you. For taking the time to chat with me. I hope we do it again. Have a great day, you guys. Well, folks, we're going to switch it up a little bit. I know the This Week in Local News segment is usually Rob's bit, but I'm going to Hobart, or is it Bogart? Bogart. Bogart. Who's you, Hobart? You, you, you actually knew Humphrey Bogart. You're that old. Is that correct? It could be a way to try to distract people from the mistake you made. I don't think it's going to work. It is working. Get it was there. working until you mentioned it. Why don't you tell us about the... Uh, anyway, news? this brings us to This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva. Or really or anywhere. anywhere else. We did that at the same time. That was good. Anyway, this week we've got one particular juicy bit of, of news, and this is from the This Could Happen to Anyone segment. So a drunk man in Turkey participated in a search for himself. Yeah. Hey, yeah. look, it could happen you, to anybody. You, Tell me a little bit more, but I'm, I'm on board. It could yeah, happen to anyone. You, you read that or heard that correctly. A drunk Turkish man was reported missing, found himself after inadvertently joining the search party sent out to look for him. That's true. His family alerted authorities after he failed to return home from a drinking session with friends and didn't return phone calls. He had wandered into a forest, as one does, and could not be found by his friends, so a search party was dispatched to the area, and Mr. Mutlu ended up meeting them in the woods, according to the report. Officials reportedly had no idea that Mr. Mutlu was the man that they had been looking for, and he joined the search party for several hours before he realized they were looking for him. Reports say Mr. Mutlu became aware that he was the one the search party was looking Looking for after they began shouting his name, which I guess it's to be I'm fair, saying. to be fair is is good on him. At least he knew that he knew his name at that time. That makes sense. 
because how would they? How would he have known if they weren't shouting? That's what I'm saying. So hey, he's out there helping a search. He's doing what he should be doing. How did he know they were searching for him? I could just picture the theme song to this search party being U2's "I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For." Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 24 brought to you by the element chromium. Yes, really. Yeah, I think Mr. Captain America's shield was made of that. No, that was vibranium. That was found in Wakanda. Ah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Brexit, of course. And we'd like to thank our guest Susan Aronson for talking to us about all things data and governance. We also want to thank Michelle for helping in producing this episode. And also, don't forget to download all of our episodes if you haven't already listened. And subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. And by soon, I mean the next couple of weeks. (laughs) You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, but really anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. They do help. And as I said, we know you have the time. You can also find us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or Instagram at Trade.Splaining or email us your questions the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. And as always, remember, folks, listen responsibly. And when we ask you for your data, click give us everything. Accept all cookies. They are tasty. Love. Yum. Hashtag listen responsibly. (laughs) Hashtag just listen. Just listen. Responsibly is, is, is also good.